There is no intention that someone who doesn't hunt will ever look at that on the shelf and pick it up and say, you know what, I'll dip my toe in. No, I mean, don't, don't be stupid. He thinks I'm absolutely freaking mad. Now, the 18-year-old version of me would have also thought that I was insane for not dropping everything and going and doing that. I've, I have been told that I'm not an offensive ginger, though. Apparently, there's a sliding scale of, of gingerism. <laughs> Anybody can pick up a volume of Modern Huntsman. Hunter, non-hunter, whatever walk of life you're from, and you will be able to gain something from it. That's our ambition with it. This is Byron Pace, photographer and filmmaker, and you are listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. There's a lot of people that can pull the trigger on an animal, but they don't know what to do with it after. If you would have told me that a stupid turkey was going to make me get that excited, I would have told you you were crazy. It's just a skill that you have to perfect over a lot of years. Hunting is a tribal activity. We've lost the tribe. We can't even hunt together anymore. Well, the people that are anti-hunting are usually pro-abortion. So kill the people, save the animals. I just remember riding my horse back to camp with the northern lights and the moose behind me, and I'm like, this is why I've done this. This is as cool as an experience as I will get. Hi, this is Jim Shockey. This is Sam Sohol, the public land bus guy. Hi, I'm Kimmy Greentree. Hi, this is South Cox with the Western Bowhunter Podcast. Hey, this is Ben Dedamonte, a.k.a. Shed Crazy. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Are y'all getting on to today's episode? I'm very excited to have Byron Pace of Into the Wilderness, the Pace Brothers, however you may know him. He's a conservationist, a photographer, and he is coming to us from all the way over the pond. I'm excited We've been talking about this, I think, for a while now. We've kind of hopped on, hopped on chatting, and then hopped off, and things yeah. happen. So, 
It's been we're we're in slightly crazy times right now. When we first started speaking, I was actually at least in the same time zone as you because I've been <laughs> in LA for like the last two months in lockdown. But I am sitting. The sun is shining, as you can probably see through my window, which is a rare thing in Scotland. But I am back in my home country of Scotland right now, uh, sitting in my office after a day of uh, editing videos. So yeah, please please to be home. <laughs> I can I can imagine. But it's, I think we actually started talking way back in the day, uh, right around the first release of Modern Huntsman. Um, wow, did we first contact? Because that was... Them? I can't even remember that. That was when I was called Living Country in the City. I had the old podcast name. Ah, okay, of course, of course. Yes, now you're ringing a bell. Yes, yes. Yeah, and it was... Uh, I remember we'd, we'd try and get it sorted, and then one of us would leave town or disappear. It's not like you go on any adventures or anything, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no, I do recall. And that's weird because the last couple of weeks, uh, and today, just just prior to me jumping on a call with you, I was on the phone to the team Modern Huntsman because we are in the final like seven days of putting volume five together. And you're talking about volume one. It just doesn't seem like that long ago. It's hard to believe that you're already putting together volume five. That is absolutely crazy to me. Like It, it is crazy, especially if you consider it comes out twice a year. So think how much time has passed. Geez, it's... You know, it's funny how time can take so absolutely long to pass, but then you look back and all of a sudden, like, you know, years have gone by and you're like, where did that go? But <laughs> it's been, a, it has been a crazy, like the eight, it last 18 months, but certainly, you know, it's two and a half years since, um, yeah, Modern Huntsman launched. And at the time when that launched, I had nothing to do with it. It was just that we saw... They had their Kickstarter with um, Tyler Sharp, who's, who's it's brainchild it is, and he's the editor-in-chief today. They had this Kickstarter, and we I watched his video. And my brother and I were sitting in the office. Uh, at that time, we were still working together. And we are like, the, the ethos and ethics and what these guys want to achieve is exactly what we've been talking about. It's the, it's the kind of thing that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, whether that be through photography or video, or we already had a podcast at the time. It was those very similar paralleled conversations that we were having anyway. So we reached out to them and said, hey, would you guys like to come on our podcast? Tell us about what, you know, what is this modern huntsman thing? Uh, so Tyler came on with his uh, business partner at the time, Brad, and they told us about this this vision and concept that they had, which was, just that at the time there was you could put your hands on anything they had this dream of delivering this publication that was going to help rewrite this narrative of hunting for a, for a modern era and for a modern hunter and uh, they delivered everything that they promised they were going to deliver so we we helped support the kickstarter by pre-purchasing i can't even remember how many issues it was because i knew that our listeners of the podcast and people who followed us if they liked what we were talking about, they were going to love this. So we pre-bought a whole bunch of copies as, as a way to support it. And that was volume one. And then after that, Tyler reached out to me and, and uh, asked if uh, you know I wanted to, to work a bit closer with him. So we had some contributions into to volume two. And then from volume three onwards, um, he uh, gave me the rather grand title of, of international editor. So uh, <laughs> every issue I've had more and more input, uh, and this issue probably more so than ever. And it's um, an issue focused on, 
traditions around the world. And we say this with every volume that goes out, but this is going to be the best yet. It's some of the writing and photography, and this is staggering. I am super, super excited to check it out. I can't wait. Uh, you know, I still, I'll go back even to volume one. I'll go back and I'll just kind of flip through it. You know, if I've got a few minutes, um, it's, uh, it's actually down in, uh, normally I keep all like my hunting materials here in the office, but, uh, I keep those modern huntsmen, uh, I, I, journals journals trying to decide what they are yeah because it's not quite a book it's not a magazine so i think uh, publication that's what we've been calling it publication yeah yeah Yeah. the issues i guess uh i'll just call them issues for now the Mm. uh those issues of modern huntsmen um you know they they live in like my living room so i can sit and and just really just enjoy them sitting on the couch and kick back and and enjoy checking through those Mm. I'm interested. So as someone who came into hunting later, so you didn't have that sort of, you know, background where it was handed down to you, seeing volume one through to the the issues that have come through now, it was always the case, pre my involvement of Modern Huntsman, and, and this is only something that's increased with time. The idea is that anybody can pick up a volume of Modern Huntsman, hunter, non-hunter, whatever walk of life you're from, and you will be able to gain something from it. That's our ambition with it. It's not, yeah, we understand that people who, who hunt and fish are involved in the great outdoors are probably going to get the most from it, that this is their interest point. But we really h- hope that anybody can pick it up and they can learn and, and philosophize and be invited into a world that they maybe don't know about. Is that how you felt? It's it's so approachable and it's it's like, this may be a weird way to describe, but it's very warm. Like, Mm. and, uh, I don't know. It's like, it's weird. It's difficult for me to, to really explain, but yes, it is, it is very welcoming. And there's something, uh, regardless of your background and where you come from, I feel like it is something you can dig in there and find something that you can relate to, not just in the whole magazine necessarily, or the whole, uh, publication, but, in every story, it's just, I feel like the stories are presented in a way that, yeah, there's something, you know, whether you've been hunting all your life or you, uh, you've only been hunting for a few years or you're just looking to get into it, or maybe you just love the outdoors and you, you want to appreciate that through somebody else's lens. Yeah. Every story has something for every person. It's not even just the whole publication. Um, it's just how everything's presented and mm. the imagery and, and all of that. It's, it's incredible. And there, I mean, there's more, uh, we really need more publications like that because, you know, hunting, especially here in North America is on the decline and we need to find ways to bring in other people and and I know it's essential. Otherwise, how are you guys going to fund your conservation? I was reading an article about this recently, and they were talking about the declines per state for conservation funding on the back of the the decline of hunting participation. But you're you're right. If you if you look at the uh, hunting outdoors recreation space, but I'm talking about what we would term in the UK field sports. So you're different types of different forms of hunting plus fishing and you look at the the publications out there and the kind of resources that are available 
the vast, vast majority of them are for people who are already within that space. That's who it's, it's catering to. So if you look at um, a, a rifle magazine on the shelf here, of which I, I, I write for um, a mag- magazine here called um, Sporting Rifle and have done for years, there is zero entry point for somebody who's not a hunter. Absolutely zero. And most of the hunting publications, the same is true in America, is the same. There, there is no intention that someone who doesn't hunt will ever look at that on the shelf and pick it up and say, you know what, I'll dip my toe in. <laughs> Don't be stupid. <laughs> That's, that is not what they're... And you can also tell that with the, the kind of advertisers that are in there. They're advertising for people who are already within that space. And we've done ourselves um, a disservice with that as a community, I think. And that's not just true in, in the print publication. If we look at the the film world and uh, photography, it, that is changing now. Like we, we have seen that shift in the last sort of probably three years now. But if you look up to that point, it, it was very much, it, it was kind of a selfish endeavor without any realization that we we needed to, open the door up and invite people in or at least make it accessible and maybe even reevaluate what hunting means to us as the community, as the current generation and how that has evolved over time. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with, and I feel like I've talked about this before, but so much of it has to do with there's so much tradition involved in hunting and with that much tradition and that's one of the amazing parts about hunting but with that people tend to get stuck in their ways with that tradition yeah and they forget they forget what makes that tradition so amazing and when you get stuck in your ways like that you're a lot slower to evolve and adapt and reevaluate recalibrate what you're doing and so you look at the media throughout the history of hunting in the united states what did it used to be? It used to be you had to write into a magazine, uh, send in a check, and they would send you, you know, a VHS tape, <laughs> and you know, you could you could watch that, and you'd have to subscribe or you'd have to do that. Now, media is consumed in an entirely different way. In in theory, this conversation we're having right now, people, you know, we could be live streaming this. People could be watching this immediately. I could yeah. have it spread across the world within instant within an instant i mean you have an internet connection while you're out hunting you can you can show an animal being uh being shot immediately and it could go to everyone you don't know who your audience is going to be unless you're controlling that and we it has taken a long time for people to understand that, that the media is being consumed in a very vastly different way than it used to be. And we need to adapt to that, not destroying our traditions, but finding a way to present them in the correct light, how we see them. Yeah. And you're right. You know, cultural inertia within and out with the hunting space is very difficult to slow down or move, and we we face a lot of challenges with that, you know, within the hunting community. And I I think that that really starts with inward reflection. Um, I was having a conversation with the guys from the Bear Trust um, some time ago, maybe eighteen months ago, when I was in Montana, 
um, we were talking about uh, the need to protect culture and traditions, which you know I agree with. But I think one of the things that we and that they had this in a, 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 as a line in, in their in their pod, uh, in their podcast on their on their website. And I was saying to them, I said that I stand by what what you've you've written, but it cannot be at the expense of um, environmental protection and animal welfare, because we we look at um, traditions and culture as something that's so inherent in the being of of who we are, and and, and some depending on what part of the world you from you're from, um, traditions may be more or less a part of what defines who you are. But there are lots of traditions as part of culture in the past that we don't do anymore. You could argue that in uh, some parts of the world where they bear bait, you know, where they chain a bear down and they fight a bear with dogs, they might argue that that is part of the tradition of their culture. Now, I think the vast majority of people in the world would find it abhorrent and disgusting. And I think even in countries where it does go on, it's probably illegal. And no one would like to see that continue. But who are we to decide what tradition is okay within what, what culture? So by using that very extreme example, we have to uh, realize that sometimes a shift in a slightly different direction so that we can stay relevant and kind of reevaluate what we do is sometimes necessary. Because just to say that something should be protected because it is um, traditional to a culture is not, it's not enough. You know, there needs to be some caveats to that. And, and, and animal welfare and conservation is, is definitely very high on that, on high, high on that list. And it's very interesting because we talk about animal welfare and, and conservation and, and so often that's used as an excuse to because people don't look at the big picture, I should say, is what I'm trying to get at. Um, so often uh, you get attacked by someone who's anti hunting, who is this, that and the other. And they say, they say, I'm sure you've heard the old line. Oh, well, how can you how can you be passionate about animals and still kill them? Yeah. And uh, the way somebody phrased it, the best way I've heard it phrased is anti-hunters or the the very like that three percent of people on one end that are just vehemently anti-hunting and all of that and the kind of the three percent of people on the other end that are very pro-hunting they're both very very passionate about animals but this side that's very anti-hunting is passionate about each and every individual animal specifically well, hunt, like say the hunting side of things is passionate about more passionate about a species and an ecosystem. So you look and you talk to this person, they're like, well, I don't want to see that one particular elk or that one particular deer, that one particular stag injured or killed. We're, we're on the other side, we're looking at it and we, we want to see the preservation of this species. We want to see the benefit of, of say that entire species, even if it may cost the life of this one animal in order for the greater good. I hate using the term for the greater good. Cause it just, <laughs> it, it sounds cliche. awful. Yeah. It's, it's very cliche, but to some extent, that's what it is. You know, it's mm. here in North America, it funds conservation. It helps manage herds. There's so much more to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I, I've used that that explanation to explain it before. 
to draw the, the distinction and difference between uh, uh, animal rights type activists, very much concerned with the individual and true conservationists who are uh, concerned about, they're concerned on an ecosystem level, which means that you're concerned about a species and, and not an individual. People forget that death is as much a part of life as living is. Uh, and death is a is a constant cycle within the natural world. And we are part of that. We die just the same as everything else. We are unique in a way that we can contemplate our own evolution to this, this point in history. Um, no other species can. But we are still an animal just like, like everything else on this planet. And uh, we will die too. And everything around us will die. The problem is that we have impacted the earth to such an extent that in many instances, the most irresponsible thing we could possibly do is do nothing. A great example of that, I was actually just reading um, the a true legend in photography and, and conservation passed away some weeks ago, Peter Beard. And I was reading his, when I came home, uh, it happened when I was away and I didn't have any of his books with me. So one of the first things I did when I came home was uh, pull out some of his art books. End of the Game is, is the big one that I have on my desk right now at home. And I was rereading that and looking at some of his photog uh, photography. And he was showing um, some photo photography from Kenya about a decade after they closed down hunting there of all of these dead elephants in one of their national parks. Oh, yes, some of those dead elephants were dead because of uh, a rise in poaching for ivory. But a lot of them, it didn't have anything to do with that. These elephants had, had died from starvation. And they died from starvation because at the time there was this very much a, a protectionist view of conservation, which was that create these parks and let everything do what it needs to do in this natural cycle I hate using the word balance because there is no balance. It, it is a, it is something that is changing. It's a, a, the best phrase that I have for it that I've read is dynamic balance. So it's uh, it, it's always going to cycle in, in peaks and troughs. And all of these elephants were dying. And if you look at the aerial photography taken at the same time, it is very clear why. Because there was nothing left to eat because they had eaten it all so this idea of putting a fence around something and protecting it and letting even if it, you know this vast area it simply didn't work because what the government at the time had forgotten is that not only had they stopped the commercial hunting but they had also banned the indigenous people of that land from hunting who would have been hunting it from the beginning of uh, human existence and so there wasn't, there was, they thought it was a natural cycle and there simply wasn't. And just going back to the aerial photograph, and we've seen photographs like this many times reproduced now with, with drones and stuff, but this was back from like the late 70s, early 80s in black and white. And you can see the line of the national park and on one side was an old hunting concession and on the left-hand side was a national park. And it looked like an atomic bomb had gone off on the left-hand side and there was just this lush green on the right. And the difference was hands-on management. Now you can argue that, well, what would be far better is if everything if animals were not restricted and they were able to find their own dynamic balance. But the problem is you can only do that if you remove humans from the landscape. And when you're talking a country like Africa with an expanding population, that's just simply not possible. And no one today would suggest that. We need to 
be far better at coming up with integrated approaches where local communities and local places, whether that be the indigenous communities of uh, different countries across the continent of Africa or local communities on the west coast of Scotland, need to have a buy-in into the assets and value of the wildlife that they live with. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Well, and so here's the thing. And, and I, I kind of laugh when you say that nobody suggests we remove humans from the landscape because, oh, trust me, I've seen the I've seen the suggestion made. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many times lately have you seen the post? Oh, oh, with with covid and everything that's happening right now, everyone's saying, oh, no, covid isn't the virus. We're the virus. And I hated that okay. advert that came out. Did you see that? That um, I actually noticed a couple of like people I really respect share it, and I was discussing it with a, another friend of mine, Jason Goldman, about this. We're the virus, and I think they've totally missed. If this, if that was a, a view for trying to improve our long-term vision of what conservation and sustainability is, I think they've totally missed the point. And that that video that came out, which I think there was two parts to it, uh, and I think it was called We're the Virus, oh, man. is so ignorant to the fact that you can only view the world like that if you're in an incredibly privileged position. If you're living comfortably like we are in houses and in Scotland and in LA and you know the, the wealthy parts of North America, if you're living on the street in LA or you're living in some rural community of Africa or the um, deepest Arctic in Russia, you're not viewing the world like that because it's hard every day. It's, uh, yeah, I was really kind of, it kind of, put my nose out of joint a bit that we're the virus um and i mean it was beautifully done and a lot of like i say there was a lot of people shared it but i don't think they really thought deeply about what it was trying to say it's that is one of my biggest pet peeves on this earth is when you have this beautifully done piece and it's just it's well produced and you know uh, typically i don't know there's some celebrity involved whatever it is whatever the concept or the topic is but you're watching it and you're like, this is, I get what they're trying to say, but you are so far off the point. You just really don't get it, do you? And it's, and then of course, people don't sit and critically think about what they share 90% of the time. No, because it's so they, easy, because it know? looks beautiful. Exactly. If, they, if they've even watched it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I should just qualify that and, 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 and say that that's not to say that I don't think that we have too many people on the planet. But that's, you know, that's something that we, that we need to think about. And a lot of that comes through education. You know, that's education and family planning, particularly in, in poor rural communities where there's very high, high birth rates. That's how you, you, you solve that issue in the long run. And uh, that's, you know, that's no one's fault, but it, there needs to be a realization that that's where we need to get to. Or maybe it's, you know, it's the more developed world's fault that we are not helping and facilitating that uh, kind of education to allow people to make those choices. And I think that's the other difference is that the, I think 
we very often view conservation um, and uh, discussions like this as it's not even imparting knowledge, it's forcing knowledge on people. But really what it is is about creating a way for people to gain knowledge and make their own choices. Mm-hmm. We see, I've seen, I actually wrote an article about it quite recently. Um, I was looking at, uh, it was talking about climate change and tying climate change to population growth. And it has been done many times in the past. And I think a lot of people, if they don't really think about it, probably point their finger towards this as well, saying, oh, well, it's because of all the extra people, because of all the people that we have now on the planet compared to, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And that is true to an extent. It's true in terms of resource utilization, particularly with regard to land mass and food. But if we're talking about climate change, that has been done by such a small proportion of the Earth's planet. A small rural community in Africa or um, uh, some the nomads in Mongolia are not contributing to climate change. They can have as many kids as they want. They are not doing... It is minimal compared to the in, in industrial chaos that is you know, down in London or across the, the west coast of, of North America. So I think we need to be very careful about how we have those discussions. It is not because of high birth rates in very poor rural communities that we have climate change. <laughs> It is because you and I drive cars and because there's massive factories in the cities. Those rural communities are not enjoying the benefits of that. Uh, but very often we expect them to pay the price. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, I don't know. It, everyone comes at things from their own perspective. You know, even tying this back into uh, talking about uh, these cultures and traditions and, and perspectives on conservation, where again we we live fairly privileged lives and we look at things from from one perspective and uh as as most people do you know say looking at things like african hunting and it's very easy and it's very easy for people in similar situations to us to say how evil that is how how it doesn't do anything to help you know i mean god forbid we bring up uh uh, Cecil the lion Don't or do something it. like Don't that. Do it. I said it. I said <laughs> <You> it. Did <laughs> it. <laughs> oh. oh, it's all going downhill from here. Yep. Yep. Let's just, uh, <laughs> let's just uh, hit the end button. Start over again. <laughs> Hi, welcome to another episode <laughs> of the wild initiative. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, Cecil. Oh gosh. And I, I, you know, don't get me wrong. Like I have, I have problems how a lot of that was presented and how a lot of that was done. But here's the deal. Who did they interview about this? They interviewed the tourists. They interviewed a bunch of people in the cities who started foaming at the mouth about it. Did they go and ask the people in the local communities what they thought of that situation? No, it's amazing. It's amazing to me, but... Let's uh, let's move past Cecil, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. Next. Uh, so, <clears throat> moving along. Um, one thing, uh, changing topics a little bit here. You know, uh, okay. 
One thing I do always like to ask, because I really enjoy this perspective from all of the different people I have on the podcast. Cause I mean, I've had mm-hmm. just about people from every walk of life you can imagine. And, uh, I always like to hear about everyone's introduction to the outdoors and hunting and really how sure they developed their passion for it. So, I mean, how did you get your introduction to the outdoors? How did it really evolve for you? It would, without a shadow of a doubt, my my introduction and my the, the passion that I have, an interest that I have now, and it came from from my dad, who's who's sitting in the next building on the balcony having his weekly uh, Zoom call with all his old hunting buddies that would that are in the syndicate that we shoot in <laughs> together because no one's been able to see each other because of lockdown. So on six o'clock on a Friday UK time, they all pour themselves a drink and go and sit and Zoom call together. Um, but from my earliest my earliest memories of anything are of either fishing or hunting of some description with my dad. Um, he said so my parents are from Zimbabwe originally, and they moved um, to the UK and had me a couple of years after they they moved here. So in those kind of early years, didn't have very much because they came here with almost nothing. Um, and we were certainly. It was certainly a a supplemental activity, actually hunting in in the very very early years, but also a nice escape to do something that my dad was doing, you know, back from the country that he was originally from, which um, just prior to he left, it was Rhodesia first, but Zimbabwe when he left, and um, so hunting rabbits with an air gun. Uh, shooting rooks out of trees for, from rookeries for on, on the on the farm uh, that my dad had permission on with an old uh, fantastic old farmer with is he this if you imagine if if people people from north america probably won't be able to picture this but if you're from the uk and you and you picture in your head a gritty west coast hardcore weather weather beaten farmer in scotland this guy john mcgregor was this would this was this was john mcgregor he sadly passed away now quite a few years ago uh but i remember hunting on on his farm and and doing up an old fishing boat at the same time there that my dad used to have and then fishing wise we lived near loch ness the famous loch ness with loch ness monster <laughs> which of course is real and my dad had a boat on there and <laughs> I'm just going to get that in there. It's how we make most of our money in Scotland as tourists coming to see Loch Ness Monster. So there's a, there's an unwritten understanding that if you're from Scotland and you have a chance to plug it, you plug Nessie and you tell everybody he's real. So they keep coming and we can keep making money and survive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but fishing for pike uh, in the hill lochs above Loch Ness, uh, it just for me, it was it was just so part of normality. The idea that I would crawl around in the long grass and get wet and go and shoot rabbits with my dad or or go fishing that was just that was just what we did and obviously at a very young age you're not really thinking about it as a, as a young kid you just want to spend time with your dad and your dad's your hero and he's the coolest person on the planet because you don't know that many people and he's like <laughs> you know the one of your one i'm not saying he isn't now but he's like you know this this savior whatever problem you have as a little boy your your mom or your dad, but because I was out with my dad a lot, you know, he's the guy who's, who's going to save you from like falling in the river, or if you fall over the boat, which I did, is going to pull you out and put you back in. Um, so you just wanted to do everything that he did, 
and that I think lay the groundwork for for everything that followed in the sort of years that passed after that he ended up working away a lot back in Africa so uh, I wasn't doing as much of those activities with him but it was so much part of what enthused me and, and what I enjoyed about life that I just I carried on doing them at, at an exponential rate and now I've done far more of all of that than he ever did in his <laughs> life so yeah that was that was my buy and it was very traditional I suppose in some respects you know a very traditional um, route and entry into you know, countryside activities. The only difference for me was that because my folks weren't from here, they didn't know any of the traditions. So I wasn't, if you think about hunting in Scotland, you're thinking about red stags, you're thinking about Atlantic salmon, you're thinking about red grouse. We weren't doing any of that. He he gave me a grounding and an understanding of what you know fishing was and and why that why why it's why it's amazing and and the, the principles behind what hunting is. But in terms of the the traditions and what that meant in the country that I lived in in Scotland, I found most of that by myself because he didn't know. He was just like dipping his toe into it here and and working and supporting a family. So. A lot of that sort of came about through my own wanderings and, and, and friends that I made in the years that, that sort of came after. So, so you kind of mentioned your dad instilled these values in you, or these this kind of knowledge and these values when it comes to the outdoors, fishing, hunting. What if you had to kind of distill that down into into a few things? Hmm. What would you? What would you like want to say, you know, impart for yeah. posterity? Um, I, mean, I didn't think this was going to be the first thing that came into my mind when you asked me this question. But beyond doubt, the most important thing, I guess, because it was just so drummed into both me and my brother later at every opportunity was gun safety, <laughs> which I, I'm sniggering at now because it's because it's it's. I don't feel like I ever have to think about it because it is a default position for me. But as a you know, as a young kid learning the ropes, that was paramount. That was more important than absolutely everything else. He always used to he always used to say to us that when you're not looking, fairies load your gun. <laughs> I'm saving that quote. And I, yeah, I and I still I still think about that to this day because. It doesn't matter how many times you've checked, is my is my breech empty? Is my gun safe? Checking one more time isn't going to hurt. And sometimes your mind plays tricks on you. I'll go back and answer this as, like a, as a second part of your question in a minute. But I'm just to give an example of like the importance of this to people, um, you know, particularly maybe, and I think this is more relevant to... From my experience, this is more relevant to people who have taken up hunting later in life because I, I know quite a few. And I think because you're learning this stuff as an adult, there's a certain part of you that thinks that you have a common sense that means that you don't need to think about these things as much as if you're a little kid, it gets drummed into you. If you're not being 100% safe, you get slapped over the head and get told that you know, if you don't do that, you'll get your toys taken away from you or you're not going to get to come out, um, you know, hunting. And that's like your world breaks down is, I don't think, I don't think I've, I've told this story to, to friends when we've been talking about gun safety and like the importance of not only like double checking, but the, the idea of muzzle awareness, just in case something goes wrong. I mean, I've been 
as you've gathered from the conversation, I've been shooting as long as I could basically walk. And for more than a decade, I've written for a rifle magazine in the UK, and I was uh, I, I reviewed guns for almost a decade. Um, so I've, I've pretty much shot every model of every gun you could possibly imagine that, that we can get into the UK. And I was up at my shooting range the one day, and uh, I, I probably had six different guns that I was reviewing and, and playing around with and shooting at different ranges. And I'm now, you know, I'm in my uh, mid-twenties, I guess. And it started to rain. And it started to rain heavy. So oh, I'm going to have to go home. Uh, we'll finish shooting another day. So I packed all my stuff up, uh, put it in my car. I was by myself. I came back to my parents' house because that's where my gun safes were at that time. And I started putting stuff away. And I lent one or two guns against the wall because they were wet and I was going to clean them. Now, normally, there's two things that happen. If I'm putting a gun away in a gun slip, I'm going to drop the bolt back if it's closed for some reason. I'm going to stick my finger up, my pinky up the chamber just to make sure. It's like, it's just one of those, yeah, you can visually check it. Some of them, and I don't like guns that you can't stick your finger, your finger up. Some of them, the ports are so small now, you can't get your finger in there. And you might think, well, that doesn't matter if you can look down it. But what happens if it's dark? What happens if you're shooting in last light? You don't want to turn a headlamp on. You don't have a headlamp. How are you going to check? You can't really check unless you can stick your finger in there. So I always do that. I mean, how so many I, times have you been staring yeah. straight at a pair of sunglasses or holding them in your hand and you can't find them? Your eyes will play yeah, tricks exactly. on you. Or a pencil. A pencil behind your ear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So normally, drop the bolt back, put it in the gun slip, and then exactly the same process coming home. Take the gun the, the gun bags into the house, undo them, drop the bolt back again um, to check it before it goes in the cupboard. But for whatever reason this day, probably because it was raining and I was rushing to get stuff away so it didn't get wet, there was a gun leaning against the wall with the bolt closed. So I was in the process of putting stuff away. I picked it up, and now I'm doing my my default position without even thinking about it. I grab the bolt with the, with the muzzle in the air, pointed at the roof, and I drop the bolt back to to like check it and put it in the cupboard. And as I drop the bolt back, a cartridge comes out. It scared the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. And I I have shot a lot of rap just because of because of reviewing and because of the nature of my job at the time i shot a lot of guns and a lot of rounds and done this process a million freaking times and it was one of two times in my life where that had happened and i was like i am i am so careful all the time but if you do it enough it's like people who say they've never taken a bad shot <laughs> they're either lying or they've done barely any hunting so I, I, barely any hunting is fine. Like everyone starts somewhere, but don't lie about it. L- lying's not cool. <laughs> but I, I tell that really protracted story and probably used up far too much time to talk about it because it is such an important thing because we only get one life, depending on what you believe. But uh, we're, we're definitely in this life, I think. And I would like to look, make this life last as long as is possible. And it's very easy to make silly mistakes like that. And I bring up muzzle awareness because that's like your backup. Your backup to making a mistake like that, which should never happen but sometimes does, is that if a round does go off because of this weird series of scenarios, at least it's not pointing at somebody. I mean, that it should never happen, but at least it's not pointing at someone. 
So gun safety, beyond doubt, is the most important thing that my dad instilled upon me uh, more than anything else. But secondly to that, just having, you know, having respect for what you're hunting. It is it is a life after all. And I think that, um, I, I don't know if, I, I don't know if uh, this happens like later in life, if you, if you pick it up later in life, but certainly if you think about other aspects of your life as a, as a youngster, as a teenager and all the stupid shit that you do <laughs> um, when you're that age and how you care a lot less about the consequences to your actions than you maybe do now. Um, I, there is unquestionably, and I think it's in most people, but maybe for a lot of people, they don't find themselves in the scenario where they've experienced it. There is a, a certain amount of um, bloodlust in the experience of killing that does set in. But I'm talking about pretty young. And it's not, I'm not talking about this sort of psychotic. I want to start taking a gun and gunning people down like that. And I'm not making any joke of that at all, but, but that's not, that is not what I'm talking about, but there is this, uh, I don't know if it's like this uncontrollable will to hunt a little bit. Like, uh, you see, um, with young animals, like fighting and wrestling with each other, because that's how they practice both hunting and fighting if it's like two male cubs or whatever they're doing that both to learn how to 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 tackle prey but also because they they're going to have to use these skills later in life and i'm not sure if it's something deep in our, our subconscious and sort of built into the the very genome that makes us that gets triggered in some people um i don't know where quite where i was going i was talking about respect for animals <laughs> but that was definitely instilled you know upon you and i i realize and appreciate that more sort of every year that i get older and i think it's i think it's only natural to want to like hunt and kill more at a certain part of your experience curve what I don't know, and this is the question I was kind of putting to you, was I, I don't know if that happens if you pick it up later in life or that is something that is tied to an activity and uh, the sort of adolescent growth that you have with this like total mix of, of hormones and experience that you're having. I mean, I think... I, I, it may not be as intense and you may, mm. you may have the, the mental awareness to be able to kind of analyze yeah. that and control it a little bit more, but I think it's still there. You know, it's, it's, I think if we're just talking hunting, like it's the path everyone generally follows through their, I guess, hunting journey. Um, yeah. You start out and you're like, I just want to get something, anything like you try and, you try and get as much, it's all about volume. Like, okay, oh, yeah. I just gotta, I gotta do this. I gotta get as many as possible. And then you kind of get through that phase where you start getting more and more selective and you're, and you're like, okay, now I gotta, I, I wanna, I wanna see you start analyzing animals and I wanna get a very specific animal. Um, and then you get to the point where you're not as concerned about it. You're, you're very selective and it's kind of that, I feel like everyone goes through it everyone spends different amounts in each phase. And as you get older, you become more aware of that. You're like, I, I, I see it in myself. And to there, there's a certain extent where I'm just, I'm still very early in my hunting journey. I have not filled a lot of tags and I'll be straightforward. I am a terrible hunter. I am really bad at it, <laughs> but I'm learning. And yeah. 
you, you learn so often by doing and yeah, absolutely. I've learned so much from my mistakes uh, and my unsuccessful hunts, but you also learn from those hunts where you, you get a little bit of a success and you know, you do fill that tag. Maybe you, you take that younger, you take that younger deer, you take that spike, you take the Turkey with, you know, the beard that's a little bit shorter because you have that opportunity, you can fill it out and it, and it adds to your enjoyment and your success. But then you can, you start to realize that you get more enjoyment out of the challenge of taking that bigger animal because you've developed that skill over the course of hunting this smaller, this smaller stuff or this younger. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's the idea. And as you get older, you're just able to recognize that a little bit more. And it's not, you're not necessarily going out there and just I'm shooting the first thing I see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there is, there's definitely a desire to get like experience under your belt and you do grow and learn so much from doing. It's a little bit like I've got a very good friend of mine, um, Eden, Eden Anand, who's like my hunting and fishing buddy back at home here. And he's only kind of, he's a couple of years younger than I am, so I'm 32. And uh, he's only recently really got into fishing, like in the last two or three years. He just wants to fish every moment of the day he's always trying to get me to go fishing with him now i freaking love fly fishing for trout it's you know it is it's it's if i could only do one type of fishing that's what i would do but i did so much of that between the <laughs> ages of like 13 and like mid uh, mid to early early to mid 20s that now it's not that i don't want to do it anymore it's just that I kind of I saturated myself with it so much that now I can put time aside to do other things like try and be an adult and like work on my house <laughs> and uh you know believe it or not like make a raised flower bed I don't know what is happening to me now that I'm uh, uh, past the age of 30 I made a freaking raised flower bed for myself like it wasn't <laughs> even like I was making it for someone else I put some raised flower beds in because I wanted to to look pretty in my garden and he thinks I'm absolutely freaking mad because I'll say not dude I, I can't go I've got to go to work do some work on the house I'm like painting my the wood cladding or whatever on Saturday so I can't go fishing. I've got to do that instead. And he thinks I'm insane. Now, the 18-year-old the, the version of me would have also thought that I was insane for not dropping everything and going and doing that. And But I mean, even on a kind of... I mean, I'm joking. And it is, kind of, it is kind of funny because I definitely would have never put anything <laughs> else in the way of going fishing or hunting at a certain age. But on a kind of more serious note, I think that I'm I'm probably... As you get a little bit older, you evaluate the the importance of other things in life, uh, and that's true. Like outside of uh, of fishing and hunting, and the importance of not just filling your days entirely with what brings you um, pleasure and like a, in a hobby type of sense, you realize the, the importance of actually putting time aside for the relationships in your life, whether that be romantic or just your family life or, or your friends and the importance for maybe you maybe all of your friends fish. So you can just go fishing with them. Maybe that would be the <laughs> ultimate or they hunt. Um, but you can't always be doing that. And, and one of the other things that I've definitely kind of lost and gained in the same respect is because, hunting particularly fishing has never really been part of my job when i'm fishing nine times out of ten it's purely because i i just want to do it because i love it but hunting a lot of hunting 
is my job, whether it be Modern Huntsman or I'm talking about hunting and conservation on podcasts or I'm doing other writing or I'm making films around it. And so like in the last couple of years, I've done I have done so much hunting, but in the same breath, I've done so little. I've done so little hunting for myself, but I have been out whether that be in Scotland or, or in Africa or North America, hunting and in that environment more than I've ever been, but I've just been doing so little of it just for me because it's normally been um, tied to work. So when I do get the opportunity to, like, I distinctly remember maybe a year ago, I uh, went row stalking for, for roe deer, just on the hills I can see from where I'm sitting right now. And I didn't take any cameras. I left my phone. I just took my rifle and my dog, I think. And I went hunting. And it was the most liberating experience because I wasn't doing it every morning and every evening like I was in my early 20s. And I really, really savored and appreciated every second and every moment of that. Uh, I Sometimes too much of a good thing, <laughs> I think, dulls the appreciation of why we do it, for sure. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Well, and kind of almost taking it back to what we talked about before and how we present the message of hunting and our passions, mm. being a well-rounded person having other interests outside of this allows you to spread this message to a wider variety of people. And I mean, Definitely. And, and keep in mind, I'm far from the ideal person in the hunting community, but like, I look at what I'm doing, even with this podcast, I come from a very different background than a good majority of people in the hunting industry. I grew up in orange County. I grew up in like the suburbs of, all Southern right. California. Not far from where I was. Not far from where exactly. I was recently. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I worked. I worked in advertising, and you know, I kind of grew up going into the outdoors. But I, I love to surf and mm. uh, all of this different stuff. And um, because of that, I come at things from a different perspective, and I have a different voice that will connect with a different group of people than necessarily, you know, this guy that again, is from maybe from the Midwest or, you know, from uh, the Rocky Mountain States. And he grew up walking through the woods with his granddad or yeah. everyone has such a different voice and having other interests, having other passions and becoming a more well-rounded individual gives you more authority to speak to people that may not get that message from, you know, from someone else. And I think it's just it's important part of spreading the message of the outdoors and hunting and conservation. It, it absolutely is. And I, I I see it so much in the rhetoric and uh, like the contextualization of hunting in the way that it it, it builds barriers with people. I, I can think just a couple of days ago, um he's actually a friend of mine, but I won't name him. Um, put up a post on Facebook, which incidentally, I barely ever am on anymore. Um, but I just happened to log in just to see the million notifications that I had on. <laughs> and um, he put up a post. It was, I, th I think it was something to do with, it could have been something to do with trophy hunting. But it was definitely to do with hunting. And the gist of the post was that 
if you can't understand uh you're clearly a stupid person if you can't understand why this is good for 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 animals and conservation and why hunting is positive and i i put for the, and this is one of the rare times i do actually ever comment on facebook anymore i said and unfortunately, this is exactly why we are completely screwed. Because all you've done here, what you said may be very well true. And he, I mean, he's a very smart guy. So I know that if he's posting something, it's because it is being fact-checked and, and is very relevant to the conversation at hand. But by framing it in that way, it basically means, well, if you don't agree with me, then you're fucking stupid. I mean, how you don't can't build a, a bigger barrier than that, and ev- immediately mm-hmm. someone is on the defensive with that. There are ways to have these conversations, and we need to spend a lot more time understanding why people feel and think the way they do if they don't agree with the hunting or fishing or the management mm-hmm. principles. And we also need to uh, be honest about ourselves and uh, and sometimes just press pause and really think deeply about some of the aspects um, and activities within our communities and try and decide if maybe it's time not to do those anymore. Uh, you know, maybe technology has allowed us to evolve so we can change management pra- uh, practices and principles and the way we hunt. And maybe things that were acceptable 50 years ago are not acceptable anymore. But there's, there's definitely... Um, a lack of will from a lot of people in the hunting community, I would say, to try and put yourselves in someone else's shoes and understand why they're so impassioned against the very core of what you believe in. And I think in most instances, I've got to a point now where I get it. Like, I get the people who are protesting in London to say, ban trophy hunting imports. We don't want to see lion skins brought into the UK. Nobody needs um, ivory but an elephant. Like, I understand all those conversations. They are far easier to understand. uh, It's far easier to understand how that kind of emotion gets riled up in someone and where they're coming from than it is to explain the arguments around um, conservation with these incredibly charismatic megafauna. That's an easy thing to understand. Understanding the conversations that we're having is very difficult. And it's quite arrogant in a way, I I think, that we, we assume that people should just understand. You know, like, if you, if you don't, if you... The reason that you don't understand is because you're 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 not you're you, you've not thought about it enough or you've not looked into it enough. How is that going to create any kind of dialogue? I think the the first way to create dialogue with somebody is to ask them questions about their mindset. And I'll admit, I'm not I'm far from the perfect person at doing that. Like I I could. I've probably lost count of the times where I've just snapped back and effectively called someone a jackass because they don't understand the concept I'm trying to, but I, I, you know, I make an attempt and I mean, it, it comes down to, you don't have to agree with the person, but if you take the high road, at least they may, they won't always take the high road and they're not going to give you the same courtesy. But if we take the high road, we treat them with respect and 
again, we don't have to agree with them, but we make an effort to see their position that only benefits us. It expands our knowledge, our understanding, and allows us to yet again, present this message in a better way. Mm-hmm. If you're coming at something from their perspective, if you're taking the time to understand that you're speaking to them in, in a manner that they will understand. Again, they may yell at you and call you an animal murderer and throw fake <laughs> blood on you. Who knows? But you know, you're going to win in flake. I, I bathe in fake blood every night. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you are, you are a redhead. Uh, that's what it is. <laughs> True. I'm not going to deny that. I've, I have been told that I'm not an offensive ginger, though. Like, I'm, apparently, there's a, there's a, apparently, there's a sliding scale of, of gingerism, and I'm like not on the offensive side of that scale. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, I'm putting, I'm putting that in the. That's going in the show notes right there that you're not an offensive ginger. <laughs> This week we talk with Byron Pace, brackets, not an offensive ginger, about. <laughs> oh, man. On that note, uh, as, as we kind of winded down here, um, say... Uh, Have we say, actually talked about anything because the times really disappeared quickly? I don't, I don't know, man. I And I honestly, like, I could continue this conversation all day. I'm having a fantastic time. Um... <laughs> But at some point, I actually have to uh, do work that pays the bills instead of the work I like. <laughs> I know this feeling. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, say somebody approached you and they say, you know, I see that you do all this hunting and fishing and the outdoors. And I've always, you know, I've always been really interested in it, but I didn't grow up in this environment. I, there's a lot to learn. It's, it's very intimidating. I don't know if I'm capable of it. I don't know if I can do it. What yeah. advice or what encouragement might you give that person? That's a really interesting one. And, and funny enough, it's, it's kind of the, I get quite a few emails to our podcast from people who this hasn't been their world. And through listening to conversations with other people, whether that be um, scientists talking about conservation and maybe the, the the role of the management principles around hunting, so they get an understand a better understanding of the not the actual doing the killing aspect of it, but but the reasonings and understandings of why it's done. Uh, that a number of people have kind of not that they've necessarily changed their mind, but it's opened their world to the, a possibility that they didn't think was there because they didn't think it was something that they could partake in uh, in a way that they were doing it for more than the the simple idea that they were doing it because they wanted to kill something. And I think that's how a lot of people kind of view it. Well, the only reason people want to hunt is because they like killing something. And I think that getting beyond that is kind of a, a first barrier if you're trying to have a conversation with someone <laughs> to, to tell them to like, maybe you should come and experience this. But to answer your question... I would say that uh, listen to conversation. Podcasts are great for that because I think you get a you get a, a real feeling of the kind of people who do it and the kind of characters. They're far more. Yes, okay. There is uh, the people who just want to do it for their own very selfish reasons and, and probably have a ridiculous bloodlust and are <laughs> killing shit over tins of beer. Those are also not the kind of people who are in my hunting life. And I 
would imagine I probably wouldn't particularly enjoy their company either. Uh, but that isn't the vast majority of people. If you can, beyond trying to understand more about the, the kind of people who do it, so it lets you kind of, it gives you an insight into that world without having to actually be there in person and necessarily feel uncomfortable. And just a little bit more knowledge makes you more comfortable when you're actually physically like in that situation. And then if you can, try and find somebody who you can just go along with. It, certainly in the early, even if I think about my early years growing up, uh, and I think this is a, going back to sort of tie it into the start of the conversation, I think this is something that's also very different with people who take it up later in life, is that you decide that this is going to be a thing for you, you know, however you've, you've got there, how, whatever your journey has been. So you start to get the kid and you learn what you're doing and now you want to go out and you want to physically do it. As a kid, I spent, not even as a kid, but certainly as a kid in the early years, I spent years following other people doing it. And then later in life when I was, um, and this is like a whole story in itself, but when I started to spend a lot more time in, in Africa, uh, both hunting and working, the first couple of years I spent going there, I never hunted anything. I was hunting lots, but I was hunting with other people, observing, watching, embracing, absorbing everything, learning a lot. I wasn't pulling the trigger. And there's a lot to be learned from that. So that when you do have the opportunity to do it yourself and there's this sort of extra burden of responsibility because now it's it's your actions with consequences, it's not quite as quite as extreme and I, I I see that as a as a big difference in in the in the learning curve is you pick it up and you do something when you're whatever whatever it may be you know once you're sort of in your twenties and thirties or forties or whatever and you very quickly want to go and actually do the thing. I would imagine a lot of people probably wouldn't be they wouldn't want to just like hang around with hunters for a year <laughs> and like experience it. They'd want to get the gun in their hand, and it's not about not. Um, you know, not actually like shooting and practicing, um, but they'd want to actually like go and do the activity. There is a huge amount to be gained. Some, sometimes I would argue more to be gained, uh, certainly in the initial years of experience, just from following people and enjoying what that experience is, is. Because then you very quickly realize that it has very little to do with the actual, with you actually killing the animal. I get far much more enjoyment today for the vast majority of things that I hunt, uh, w with the exception of geese on the foreshore, because I want to be the one that's doing that, because this is a fairly <laughs> new thing for me, shooting geese on the foreshore. But when it comes to like stalking deer and antelope and stuff, I get far more enjoyment taking a friend out and getting them into a deer and watching them shoot it. It has nothing to do with me actually killing it. And I'm getting... I'm getting more enjoyment out of that than I've gone and done it myself. So yeah, try and find find some friendly faces. The great thing now is the great thing about social media now is that you're able to reach out to these people. So find whether it be you know a, a photographer or someone who posts a lot of stuff on on Instagram that you think sort of fits with the, the ethos and ethics of the kind of hunting that you want to do. I've had a lot of people reach out to us over the years. Um, to myself and my brother saying um, I wanted to try hunting but I didn't like uh, what was the type of hunting that was 
kind of available to pay for. I want to try and do the hunting that you guys do, which is much more a kind of wilderness experience hunt where, where it's about everything rather than I'm just going out to go and, uh, and shoot a deer for the day. When we were running our wilderness camps, it was, it was it was about getting out into the middle of nowhere. It was about setting up the teepees. It was about cooking what we eat while we're out there. So we had a lot of people reaching out to us to come and do that because they wanted the whole experience. So it's not to say that every type of hunting or fishing that exists is going to be for you. But there's probably a niche within that, which is something that you could really get something out of. There are plenty of people who adore bird shooting and have zero interest and probably wouldn't get really get any enjoyment out of deer stalking. And that is fine too. That is absolutely fine. Um, so don't think just because you're not... you feel uncomfortable doing one type of hunting that it's all not for you there's there's so many facets to it from i don't i don't think you guys do this in north america but from like ferreting putting a ferret down a rabbit hole and bolting rabbits out and shooting them with a shotgun or into long nets Mm. like that's a type of i mean if you're putting them into long nets you're not even shooting but it's it's a it's a it's a beautiful a very old way of working in the countryside I uh, I had Rachel Carey on the podcast. And oh yeah, I know Rachel. Yeah, she was she was explaining ferreting to me, and uh, oh, she? forever forever in my mind, uh, I will remember from our conversation in her voice, uh, the, her her telling me that they they used to call her the ferret girl. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> I uh, I will I will forever forever remember that. But yeah, that's definitely uh, not something we have uh, at least that I'm aware of that we do here in North America. Yeah, I don't think you do. No. <laughs> But that's fantastic. So I really appreciate you taking the time to hop on, Byron. If folks wanted to find you on the interwebs, where can they hunt you down? So on Twitter, I'm at Byron J. Pace. On Instagram, I'm at Byron J. Pace. And on Facebook, if you look up the Pace Brothers film, uh, all the stuff there. And the, but the website really has like all the content and, and the podcast and all that stuff. So uh, thepacebrothers.com uh, is a website, everything there. And if you're looking on the various different podcast platforms, if you just search uh, Into the Wilderness or, or my name, it'll, it'll come up. Fantastic. I'll make sure to link to those on the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Thank you again so much for taking the time and uh, traveling all the way across. It's amazing that we can actually do this. And it's like just... Well, I sure as hell couldn't travel in a plane right now. Apparently, I'm not allowed into America, (laughs) along with everybody else from the world. It has nothing to do with the fact that, that... you're uh, from a different country and all, all to do with the fact that you're a ginger. I'm ginger. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> I, I knew that could come. I... <laughs> what a great again. way to end the show. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, y'all that'll do it for this episode of the wild initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at the wild get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. I enjoyed it. That'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next week. But until then, I hope this podcast inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to the Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. Don't miss.
Access, Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.